0: So welcome to the Privileged Man Podcast. This is your space to explore the less spoken aspects of being a man in today's world. I'm your host, Pete Hunt, inviting you on this journey of discovery and understanding. Today is an incredibly special day for me as I welcome a woman who has been a guiding star in my own journey of self-discovery, Janet Hogan. After discovering the Privileged Man in the Sunday Times, I started to work with Janet, who helped me uncover a belief, which I'll reveal in this podcast, that held me back for over 30 years. Janet's narrative is not just compelling, it's deeply inspirational. At the height of her commercial success story, Janet found herself in possession of everything, but the one thing she had been chasing her entire life, inner peace. This elusive peace wasn't found in an expected epiphany, but emerged from a near-death experience, casting her life into sharp, transformative focus. From the brink of the unknown, she heard a voice that said, Janet, you've let everyone down. And in that startling moment, she realized that what she had believed to be selfless sacrifices were actually a form of denial. And she'd been unknowingly withholding herself from her greatest gift, her incredible ability to teach and guide. So after this revelation, Janet dedicated the next decade to the study of personal development. However, it was her two decade tenure in advertising, studying human motivation, combined with her frustration with traditional therapies and transformational modalities that drove her to create her own unique programs. Now Janet devotes her energy to helping others find their true path and go on their own inner journeys. Welcome to a truly enlightening episode four of the Privileged Man podcast.
1: Janet, welcome to the
2: Privileged Man podcast. Thank you, Pete, and it's an absolute pleasure to be here. So,
0: Janet, I've taken a huge internal journey with you, which I'll talk about more later in the podcast, but what does that journey within mean to you?
2: Well, imagine, just to use a a metaphor, imagine that you've got a chest of drawers and that there are three drawers. Um, And let's say this is a metaphor for our inner self. Um, And so... Uh, or how our mind works. So the top drawer, let's say it's like the sock drawer, right? It's really easy to open. And that's like our conscious mind. And so when we're talking about um, our mind and our thoughts, we're only really relating to that top drawer. That's what we're thinking about. And that contains all the information that's really easy to, ex- uh, to access. Um, so for example, I'm, talk- I'm, I'm conscious right now, Pete, that I'm talking to you. I'm having this conversation. So I'm, I, it's readily available to me. I'm conscious that today it's Friday, um, that over here, it's the afternoon. There's a rooster crowing in the background I'm conscious of. I wonder if he's gonna be picked up in the audio. <laughs> so all those things are going on in my mind right now. Um, but I'm pretty unconscious of the two drawers beneath that top drawer. So the middle drawer, let's say, uh, that's our subconscious mind. And that's where information is stored that I don't really need right now, but I can access if I want to. Like. I can remember the birthdays of my three daughters, but the part that we don't, uh, that we're not aware of, and uh, the reason it's important to be aware of this is because this is the part that's actually driving our bus, is that bottom drawer. And just imagine that that's got a special lock with a special combination to it that most of us can't open at will. And that holds all the things that our system, if you like, our mind deems that we may not need or might not be useful to us. And that makes up maybe say 50% of our overall brain capacity is in that uh, unconscious realm. So anything around our past that has been particularly painful, for example, we will uh, will tend to be kept down there where we can't access it. So when we talk about doing the inner work, we're talking about doing a deeper dive than we normally go to that part of us, that inner basement, if you like, that is really driving our show that's controlling all our outcomes and our behaviors and how we feel and think. So when people say, oh, are you?" and it might be smaller than that, but it might even be as low as 2%. So when people say, oh, you're only using 2 or 10% of your brain, that's not strictly true. The whole brain has been used. It's just that we're only accessing a tiny um, percentage of it.
1: Mm, wow. So with that realization, how can we then go and access the... 90 or 95 percent that is actually we can't feel or we can't see or we're just not aware of, how does that that happen?
2: What's really important in all of this is our system will only give up information when it feels safe to do so. So, For example, if you have um, a partner who is accusing you of something um, and wants to know why you did something. Why did you get home so late? You know, why did you have that drink with the boys? You're not going to give up information at that point. You're not so, so suddenly going to get some insight from your unconscious mind. In fact, you'll probably have the opposite response. You'll probably go into freeze mode, or you want you might want to walk out the room, or you might start feeling feeling yourself getting angry. Um, so that's like an an automatic response that we have. However. If you have someone who is gently guiding you, then you can actually retrieve this information and, uh, and start to find out what is actually um, operating, what is your operating system? What is creating outcomes in your life? And generally, um, those uh, thoughts or the outcomes are driven by thoughts. Most of those thoughts, it's estimated around 70% of them, are inherently negative. So, if you're not aware of those negative thoughts driving your behaviour, it's it accounts for why you might not be getting the outcomes that you want in life. Why you might be waking up in the morning wrapped by self doubt, or why you might have started a business and be going, "Am I going to be? Am I going to fail at this?" Uh, why you might lack self confidence. Why you might get that pit in your stomach when you roll up to work, like I used to get.
1: And our thoughts are creating our reality, right? So your thoughts yeah so i mean this is you know and i to talk to people about the privileged man and i'm i'm trying to explain it i'm saying well when you look in the mirror and you look at your body and you go well no i i'm not actually happy with the state of my body you go well i'll check myself into the gym and or i'll get a personal trainer or i'm going to sign up for an iron man or whatever whatever it is but it's like society accepts that as normal we accept that as normal because it's you can see it physically you can you can actually see see it but the internal work mental thought process is something of which really maybe only just coming to the, the well it's fairly frontiering isn't it it's only really coming out as being something socially acceptable to actually go and um talk about what are the resistances f- that you've come across for mm. men particularly not to address this as though they would address their physical state. Why? What are the blockers? What's stopping us from going into that?
2: There are a lot of factors. Probably the two strongest ones are fear and shame. So fear is usually around, is this a Pandora's box that I'm going to open? And is it going to unleash a whole bunch of stuff that's going to scare the bejesus out of me and actually stop me being able to function? So that's one. And the second one is, what if I take a look inside and I don't like who I see? You know, what if I think even worse of me than I think currently? (laughs) So let's just say that what we think of ourselves is a distortion of the truth. It's actually not real. So if the distortion already feels negative, it's normal to think, well, if I then face it, it's gonna be even worse, at, at least at the moment, I'm kind of covering it up and ignoring it. Um, and in fact, the opposite is true. When you actually, you know, it's a little bit like, uh, Pete, when you're a little boy, did you, did you ever wonder or did you ever imagine there might be a monster under the bed or a monster in your wardrobe?
1: There was, you know. there was one living in the tree outside our house.
2: <laughs> right, okay. So if you'd actually climbed that tree, what would you have found?
1: A robin. <laughs> it's something, some really friendly bird. Yeah.
2: Yes. So we tend to create the monster in our mind, but it's not actually there in reality. So when we do finally shine a torch on that, what we call the dark side, it's only dark because we're not looking at it because the light's turned off. But when we turn the light on, we go, oh, there was nothing to be scared of at all. When we make the unknown known, it's inevitable that we're going to like who we see. And that's probably the biggest surprise for me, at least, of being human, that this thing that we spend our entire lives avoiding, running away from, is actually nothing uh, nothing bad, nothing to be feared at all. It's actually more like a coming home to the self.
1: It's interesting. Thank you for that. It's, it's really interesting because it feels as though that there's a whole, been a whole system that has been built to almost shame The people who feel the most amount of shame (laughs) so it's just like you know that what are the options here to go to you know therapy psychotherapy a psychiatrist all of which are really options when you've hit a a place of rock bottom um Mm. or a place where you really need the help and this is what i feel as though i'm trying to bring to the awareness bring to the consciousness of of men particularly in their in their middle age is that you don't need to hit rock bottom you don't need mm. to get so far down the line uh, that you then need to go and see seek professional, um, necessary professional advice. And what I mean by professional is ones which are qualified through the the system that exists. And of course, there is the place for them. Of course there are. Mm. But the majority of men don't live in a place where they've got to the space where their lives have fallen apart yet but they can feel that something is not quite right. There's a a sense of emptiness, there's a sense of unworthiness. I just want to unpack that a little bit with you because I know that, you know, the work that we've done together was so impactful for me, um, particularly working with the shadow. For me, when I worked with you, Janet, you brought a real clarity to what the shadow is and that it's not, something that is woo-woo and not something that needs to be necessarily danced around a fire with crystals and sort of roller beads and all the rest of it and okay that's for some people but actually addressing this does actually change lives the way in which you Mm. did it for me was so much more simple so much more pragmatic and i'd really just love for you to explain the shadow to the listeners a little bit and how um your work Sort of starts to to connect with that, and why going into that uh, darkness, as you talk about it, brings us into the light.
2: Yeah, and uh, no, that's a great question because the shadow is really misunderstood. Let's just say that it's pretty normal for any one of us to feel that there's something wrong with us. Um, you know, the generic form of that is, "I'm not good enough. I don't feel I'm good enough." Um, and that's a, that's a feeling that most of us share. Or I'm not enough. Let's just say that that's the starting point. Um, so what the shadow is all about is that part of us that fuels that feeling. Why does it do that? Why would be Why would we be inherently geared to think less of ourselves? I mean, that's that's really the the big question around being human. Why are we programmed to think we're less than we really are and then we spend the rest of our lives trying to prove just how wonderful we are and we flip-flop between those two positions of inferiority and superiority? Why is that? Well, let's just say that you know, way back in thousands and thousands of years ago, um, danger was real and there really were tigers and lions lurking in the jungle and there probably were real threats and so it was almost justified to be scared of things. Now what's happened is we've taken that fear and we've internalized it and we've turned it back on ourselves and said, "I feel this way because there's something wrong with me. I'm not good enough for whatever reason." So think of it this way that the shadow is like the gatekeeper of that dark self and its job, it's not to haunt you at all or make you feel bad about yourself. Its job is actually to protect you. And it's created at some time, or it, it seems to uh, find its seeding at some time between the ages of typically zero and seven. So, in our childhood. And at that point, when it was created, or when that response to be fearful and feel, oh, I've done something wrong, you know, I'm a bad person, when that response was created, it was at a time in our lives when we felt that everything that happened to us. Happened because of us. So in other words, if daddy got angry at me, it wasn't because daddy was having a bad day and someone, uh, you know, he'd uh, been stuck in a traffic jam on his way home home from work. It's because I've done something wrong. Or if mommy yells at me, it's not because um, she's just had a fight with her husband. It's because I've done something wrong. Um, so everything that happens to us, if our parents split up, It's very normal for the child to lay the blame on themselves, even though, of course, um, they probably had nothing to do with the parents splitting up. So we carry this uh, embodied sense of guilt and shame around ourselves. And what happens is instead of us just processing that out as we get older and more aware, it stays locked in as our program. So the shadow is there to keep us in a place of fear, if you like. Because if we're not in that fearful space, we might go and uh, we might go and put ourselves in a place of danger. So, if you can imagine, you know, a little five-year-old boy, for example, has just got yelled at by his dad. Is he going to yell back at his father and say, "You're an effing asshole, dad," for yelling at a five-year-old like that? No, <laughs> he's not. He's going to uh, he's, he's going to be frightened of getting into trouble. So, our response as a child is to protect ourselves and go small, and the shadow oh, makes down. sure. To shut down and the shadow makes sure that that's what we do in our adult life. Of course, that behaviour doesn't serve us anymore, but the programming that was uh, seeded when we were very young may, uh, is maintained throughout our adult life until we do something about it.
1: The more and more work that I do, the more and more aware I am of the influence that I'm having on my, on my daughters, particularly Tula, who's now nearly four. Um, it's a lot isn't it it's a it's a lot of responsibility that highlights to me this expression that you taught me which is that pain was unavoidable and whatever we do as parents we can't really put a wall around our children to stop them being or having pain of course we can do as much as we can and i and are in at work um, both as fathers and both as as mothers but when it comes down to it we can't actually provide a wall against pain for our children forever as painful as that mm. is as as parents because of course we don't we don't want our children to be in pain so then men coming into their 30s 40s and 50s come into a place where they are beginning and the cracks begin to open of hearing these thoughts and these feelings inside their body of that they're not proud of and they're not feeling good about and they see this reflected in the way in which their children are behaving and they're actually going I want to do something about it but I don't know how to do anything about it I don't know how to express Mm -hmm. this sort of almost boyhood that is within me this suppression this I've suppressed so much for so long I don't know how to express it what would you say to them
2: yeah I I think the great thing about being alive today is that the whole idea of uh well mental wealth as we're calling it is a is a whole new exciting concept that basically says listen everyone feels like shit most of the time (laughs) you're not alone um once uh the the very word, word mental health had a stigma about it, probably still does to an extent. It's like, oh, they're the people who have something wrong with them. No, we all believe deep down that there's something wrong with us to some extent. We all blame ourselves. We all play much smaller than uh, we really need to. There are a couple of thoughts on this one, Pete. One is, you know, there's that Chinese expression, when is the best time to plant a tree? Well, um, if you want to really reap the benefits, the beautiful fruit and the shade from that tree, it's probably 20 years ago. Um, however, when when is the next best time? It's now. So uh, what I'm realizing is you don't have to wait till your marriage uh, breaks, uh, you know, uh, till you get into a, a, d- a state of divorce or your business goes bankrupt um, or something else terrible happens. You don't have to wait for that cataclysmic event to then have the necessary motivation to do something about it. You can actually do that now. Um, the real, the important thing to remember is the sooner you do this inner work and resolve that what we call the childhood wound. So, for a lot of us, it's actually that that child who they call it. They now call it the uh, the sacred wound, which I quite like actually because it suggests that it's a universal part of being human that we all carry a sacred wound, mm. um, and that that keeps us locked into the age. At which we were when that wound was first inflicted on us, even if we can't remember it. So, yeah. you know, people use the metaphor of a five-year-old driving a Ferrari. That's pretty much um, accurate for most of us. That's how we're trying to get through life in that as that five, that wounded five-year-old. Mm. So, the best time to do this work is now. And then, what's the best approach? Um, what do you do? Well, it's really that feeling of being totally lost and helpless that's okay. fueled that. It fueled my desire to get people out of that place as quickly as possible. So there are all sorts of things that are available to you. And I'm I'm not saying that these don't work. I'm just saying that some of them work better for some people than others. Um, but, you know, there, there are things like cognitive behavioral therapy, like talk therapy. Um, there are different programs, EMDR, um, NLP. There are all these different um, kind of programs that you can do I suppose if I put on my advertising hat, so that's most of my background was spent in a problem solving world where we had to be accountable to people who presented us with a real problem and demanded a real result. So, coming from that background gives me a totally different point of view on this issue of where we feel stuck and overwhelmed in our lives and we don't know what the next step is. So, the approach I've taken is, does it have to take years and years to get to this place of inner peace? Does it mean uh, spending a year in Bali um, and learning how to meditate? Or is there actually an easier way that gets us to a place of uh, inner resolution, a feeling of being at home with ourselves Uh, that is more like a process? And so that's the area that I've pursued to take people on what I would call more of a guided journey with a specific beginning middle, and end so that we can resolve that shadow self, bring it to consciousness, understand what it's all about, and then uh, the beauty of that when we finally do that is we can look in the mirror, uh, look eye to eye with ourselves, and go, you know what? You're not that bad. In fact, you're you're okay and you're going to be okay. That's where really we want to get to.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. And so I, I, to give the listeners some insight into the work that we've done together, I was Six years, not a year into Bali, six years <laughs> into into my journey, uh, I guess when I came across your work and I'd been on silent meditation retreats, I'd done meditation teacher training courses, hours and hours of yoga, hours and hours of beach walks, hours and hours of eating coconut, talking, chewing the fat you know, going to Australia, America, several different times on personal development courses, all which laid an amazing foundation for me to be able to facilitate and to hold space and to listen. It's something that I really did not do very well. (laughs) Um, But in general, the work Got me to a place where I was a very, very much a calmer self. I was much happier within myself, but I still had niggling sense of unworthiness and a niggling sense of, well, I was given an amazing upbringing. I had a loving family. I went to the best schools. My parents are still together um, in a very loving relationship. I had two very loving sisters. I did beautiful holidays down on the Isle of Wight. How can I feel? the way that i do like how can i still feel aged 38 39 in a state of mild fuzz and what i found out from the work that i did with you was that when we went back into and you guided me towards um that eight-year-old boy is that a belief that i'd been holding all of my life as uh, well, since I was that eight-year-old boy, was that I was a stupid little boy, and to give some context to that, I was stupid because I found out that I was dyslexic, and back in the 90s, that wasn't well a well-handled thing. I was little because I am little, <laughs> and I was called a boy. And for whatever reason, in a very loving sense, I was called boy. That was my nickname growing up until I think I was 12 or 13. And in fact, one of our family friends still calls me boy to this day in a loving way, right? So none of this was done in a way which was um, someone went out of their way to hurt me. But this was a way in which I had created this very subtle unconscious belief that I was a stupid little boy. And having the awareness to understand that I'd basically driven my life from a place of being a stupid little boy was hugely fundamental because essentially what I'd done was to create various different identities off the back of that. And the biggest one, which I came into the work with you uh, saying, was that I wanted to understand why I got into business with the wrong business partners. And what I found was that i had a continuous cycle of playing a sidekick as you called it in your best aussie tones yeah so i was like a, i was a sidekick and when you repeated that to me i was just like yeah i am i'm a sidekick and there are various different things that in my upbringing where i can take that back to um in terms of not being the leader i was the vice captain of basically every sports team that I was in. I was never the captain. I was great at what I did, blah, blah, blah. But I was a psychic and I took that into my corporate career. And then I took that into entrepreneurship where I had to be a co-founder and I had to find someone that were, that I lent on and that I sat behind. And when I actually recognized that I was a powerful, significant leader who made a difference. It was was a moment that really changed my life. And I really realized that I stepped out of being a boy at that moment and being into a man. And, yeah, stepped out of the thoughts of of self-pity, stepped out of the thoughts of of judgment and anger at perhaps people who had, who I thought had had a massive influence on my life. So it was like Mm. I felt really... Uh, a a sense of love and kindness for my young self and also a sense of, ah, that's what it was as an adult. So I didn't start keep berating myself and I haven't kept berating myself.
2: I think it's really important that you share your story because I don't think this is a conversation that's really, that's probably being had anywhere else. That what is the, the root cause of this feeling that we have of unworthiness and unlove and that in whatever way we're not good enough and to be able to bring it back to what is essentially a life sentence, isn't it?
1: I was gonna say that there are. And I you know, I saw and I made a I made a call maybe two or three years ago that I didn't want to be a grumpy old man. I didn't want mm-hmm. to be a man in their seventies looking back, thinking that everyone everything and everyone was a shit. And that's what I see now in many 70, 80 year olds, is a sense that the world is a is a very negative place and i i can track that back to did they live a purposeful life did they live a purposeful and full life and that's something that was non-negotiable non-negotiable for me and coming through and doing this work has given me a sense of confidence and purpose to create the what i now live for which is the, the privileged man
2: no, I can see that you are really uh, living your purpose. So the big aha for me was when I realized I, I knew that when I when I set about cracking the code, if you like, I wanted to resolve this issue of inaction. Why do we feel like we're wading through molasses in life? You know that we're being consumed by quicksand. That we've created this monster of our own making and we can't escape it. Why do we find ourselves in these predicaments? What is that about? And so I knew that there was, you know, a lot of overcompensating behavior behind that, you know, burnout, executive burnout, working too hard, workaholism, all those things. But what is the what is the root cause of this behavior that doesn't serve us, that just drains us of energy and makes us, puts us in a worse position than ever? And so uh, it was coming across this idea, I, I, I think most people are familiar with the concept of limiting beliefs, you know, uh, uh, life sucks, uh, I'm not, uh, money is dirty, I'm not supposed to be happy, I'm here to work hard, um, you know, there are tens and tens of thousands of these limiting beliefs. The bigger half for me was that we think around 70,000 thoughts a day, as incredible as that sounds, um, but that supposedly is around the number of thoughts, 70% of those thoughts are negative. 90% of those thoughts can usually be traced back to one. So when I heard that, I thought, you're kidding. Really? My advertising brain was just, you know, the lights were, uh, were going off all over the place. I thought, well, then that's it. We have to go in pursuit of that, that thought. And the metaphor that came up for me was a termite colony. So if you think of your mind like a termite colony um, and that unconscious mind under the floorboards um, active with termites that you can't even see because they're invisible to you. You just kind of know that there's something not quite right with your mental programming because of some of the outcomes you might be getting in your life. Why, uh, you know, uh, why you wake up at three in the morning uh, with a pang of fear going, oh my God, and um, not, able to, not, uh, not able to go back to sleep again, catastrophizing, self-doubt, lack of confidence, all those things. So there's, there's an awareness, a vague awareness that there's uh, something going on beneath the surface. But think, go back to that termite colony and think, okay, so there are these thousands of termites eating away at the foundations of myself, let's just say that, just like they would the foundations of a house. But where do all those termites come from? What creates them? And so most people will probably have no idea, but a termite colony isn't that different from a beehive, right? Mm -hmm. In a beehive, we know that there are all these uh, drones, there are worker bees, um, but there are also, there's one Queen bee uh, and she's the one that they're all looking after and the queen bee's job is just to lay eggs so let's just say that there is the equivalent in the termite world a queen termite and if you see photos of this queen termite she looks like an elongated Michelin man she's really fat she's white She's kind of segmented and she just lies there and her job is to pump out uh, roughly 3,000 eggs a day so our mind is is um, <laughs> is structured in a not dissimilar way in that we have one key thought, which I call the core destructive belief, that sits at the bottom of everything else, that basically propagates all these other thoughts. So if we can get down to that one core destructive belief and shine a torch on that, just as you would the Queen Termite, you if you eliminate her, the whole colony dies. So if you can shine a torch and effectively El- uh, eliminate or vaporize that core destructive belief just by being able to see it. Then you start to control all those negative thoughts, you tame those negative thoughts, and suddenly you can start to operate from a whole different mental programming, but first you have to get to that root cause.
1: Yeah, it's, it's amazing. As I said earlier, you know, mine was that I was a stupid little boy. I mean, imagine walking around as a, a 40-year-old man <laughs> conscious belief that I'm a, i was actually a stupid little boy and completely un, unworthy of what was going on in my life but the more yeah. and more i tell that story the more and more people go yeah i resonate with that yeah. there's some kind of yeah. that's interesting um and um yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, listening to this, there are quite a few men going, you know, internally thinking, yeah, actually, that sounds about right. Because we did get told we were stupid boys, whether we were stupid little boys, um, and how yeah. that was constructed for me it was the dyslexic, dyslexia thing. Mm-hmm. For me, you know, I was genuinely little, and for me, I was genuinely called a, a genuinely called a boy in a loving sense, but in a non-loving sense, we were also called stupid boys at school yeah and yeah. you know even running around and we talked earlier about how parents talk to their children and what and and you know what that does and being called a stupid boy or a stupid girl that imprints all they're hearing is that i am stupid and so those children are growing up with yeah. this thought and process and creating an identity that they are stupid and um, the only yeah. way to get around that as you found um or as you thought, was A to get straight A's at school and that's all that matters, because I then I'll please mummy and daddy mm. and I won't be stupid. Um, and or in adult life, well, I'll better become a, you know, an accountant, lawyer, a banker, or do the right things and be incredibly successful at them, because that will mean mm. that mummy and particularly daddy, when it comes to men, will be proud of me. I'm not dispelling it as something that isn't success, but what I'm saying is is it success on the inside? Are you actually really happy about the way that you're pointing in life? It does come down to why are we living the lives that we do? And it's driven um, by these unconscious limiting beliefs. And if we don't come face to face with them, they drive us Mm. throughout our lives. So what specifically fuels your love of working with men specifically?
2: Well, I think my inspiration comes from my dad. Uh, so he was a, a typical, very hardworking professional. He was actually a doctor and he specialized in ears. So he was an, uh, what, what's called an otologist. And he was actually the first uh, otologist in the world to implant a cochlear or a bionic ear device in a baby in the world. So suffice to say, he was very good at what he did. But I remember him coming home from work every evening, and he would say, oh, they got their pound of flesh today as he trudged through the front door, you know, just an exhausted man working himself to death. But the worst part was when he retired, it's not as if life suddenly got better. Actually, it got worse because his whole identity was tied up in being the doctor. So when he retired, he sort of became nobody. And I think this is a very, very common experience for men particularly who are so identified with being the breadwinner, the hard worker, having to uh, look after the family, then becoming very separate from the family, leading a totally different life, becoming a stranger to their loved ones. And I just remember seeing my dad slumping on the couch, reading old copies of the Australian Medical Gazette um, and in a state of depression, not having developed any outside interest, not really caring about much at all. And pretty quickly from that point, that prostate cancer that was always lurking came back and he, li- he died at the age of 71, probably 20 years ahead of time. And so I felt really cheated of not ever getting to know my dad, that to lose him and never really get to know who he was. So he died a mystery and even 20 years later, my mum and dad still talk, my mum and, uh, and I rather, still talk about him. Uh, and and go. I wonder, you know, why did he do such and such, or what drove him to work so hard? You know, uh, and, and so the mystery is never solved. And I and I think men tend to undervalue their role, or can undervalue their role in the family. The father is so 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 important, even if he's spending a lot of days or a lot of hours away from the family. And do you know what a child wants more than anything? They don't want their dad to trudge home through the door and say they got pound of flesh. They want to see a dad who is happy, bouncy, who loves what he does, has energy and basically becomes a great role model for them. We want our fathers to be happy just as they want their children to be happy. We all want the same thing for each other. So if I can spare any man that forlorn moment of hitting retirement going, oh my God, I've wasted my whole life. Is this all there is? Um, I, I will do that so that they don't die a mystery to their families.
1: Thank you. What a, yeah, it's a really beautiful story underlying the, your purpose. And I think so many men can resonate with that. And also a lot of men will be resonating in, in terms of the roles that they're playing, going, I, you know, I wish I could come back happier, but I just don't know how. But I hope what we've talked about today will give them some insight into actually why they feel the way that they feel. The other thing that just came up when you were talking about your father is and has come up in other podcasts that I've done um, is the male loneliness issue is the friendship issue. And that a lot of men today and historically have created their uh, friendship circle around the workplace. And when that workplace is taken away and the clients get taken away. And suddenly that day-to-day is, when I say taken away, they retire from it, say, 58, 60, 62. There is an app, there's, it's like, the you know, the plug's been taken out of the bath and all of the social interactions and a lot of their friendships go down the, the pipes with it. And actually re- recognizing that they are commercial relationships, they're commercial friendships. They can be friendships, but they're generally commercial friendships. The importance of having community... And i'm just wondering if you see the difference between men that you work with or a common commonality of the men that you work with with those who don't have community and those who do have community
2: oh definitely yeah i think um men set themselves up for a life of isolation because and this is how they're fundamentally different from women If a woman feels uh, lonely or depressed or isolated, she will tend to get on the phone or reach out to someone or go and have a cup of coffee or talk to someone. So the natural inclination is to reach out. And it's a situation that she sees leaking into the rest of her life. So if you feel bad in one area, it's gonna tend to affect your other areas of life. If you have a problem with one of your children, you're gonna take that problem into bed at night, you're gonna take it into your relationship. If you're, if as a woman, if you have a problem in your life, it tends to be very visible and uh, it's, it's always at the forefront of your mind. Men have this uh, special ability to compartmentalize um, feeling uh, feelings that are uncomfortable and almost putting them to one side as if they don't exist and then throwing themselves into another direction, which could work as a tactic uh, temporarily, but as a way of living, it doesn't work. So when you start to bring men together into a community where they're prepared to speak about those feelings, it's incredibly powerful. And to have it outside of a work situation, which essentially the relationships there tend to be transactional, you do this, I'll give you this, um, to actually instead have a friendship formed and a community formed from common lived experience that has been uncomfortable or uh, put you in a place where you feel alone and isolated, suddenly starts to break down that wall of shame so that you can talk about it. And the minute you talk about it and say, you know what, my life sucks or whatever the language is, the minute you can say that to a group of others and know that it's being heard, that shame and that heaviness starts to lift. Yeah. And suddenly you go, you mean I'm not really all alone? There are other people like me out there and you can start to share your experience and heal yourself that way. It's a really important first step. If you're not sure of what step to take, I would say finding a group of people that you feel comfortable opening up with because you've probably got something in common with them, ideally, um, is a, a brilliant first step to get out of that place of heaviness and feeling like you're carrying the world on your shoulders.
1: Yeah, sure. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah, the on the, you know, the other another quote that I uh, talk about regularly is the isolation is half the suffering uh, the, mm. the thought and the experience that you may be having or have had in that shame or that guilt or whatever it whatever it is that you've done the suffering is in the isolation it doesn't dissipate after five pints down the pub it doesn't dissipate with you know going off and doing cocaine it doesn't dissipate with watching porn it doesn't dissipate through all of these distraction measures that we as a society really use as a coping mechanism especially and what i'm what i what i am you know the message that i'm giving out and is my experience because i've done all of them and i have been down all of those dark dark channels but it does none of it works it's always short-term cover it really is through really like going from one bomb bunker to the next. And it does take a huge amount of courage to actually take the step into, you know what, I'm going to face this. But once that step is taken and you're feeling a safe space where you're, you know, you're not going to be splattered all over social media and you're not going yeah. to be shamed by the participants for having that thought, you'll realize. And this is what men realize, the, you know, when when we come into safe spaces is that we are, so much more alike than we are different, mm. and in that yeah. is just a massive amount of relief from the female perspective. And from what you hear from women that you work with, what is it that women want from men? Big question.
2: Uh, we want partners who are whole within themselves. Um, quite often, we're attracted to someone, particularly when we're young, and Uh, we haven't done any kind of inner work and we just uh, bumble our way through uh, life and love, it's such a tricky path to navigate, that we will look for someone who we sense unconsciously, I don't think we're doing this consciously, that we uh, look for someone who will complete us. It's almost like I've got a missing piece in me, but when I'm with that person, uh, we're a whole. Um, And so that's really the basis for a codependent relationship. Now, it's probably impossible to have any relationship that's not a bit codependent. It's all about degrees. But the opportunity or invitation or challenge, if you like, is within that relationship to start to find ourselves. There's often a fear within couples to do that. It's like uh, if the woman says, you know, I want to do this program, but I don't think my husband's going to let me um, or he won't be happy about that. It's usually because he's scared he's going to lose his his partner, uh, that she'll grow and fall out of love with him. What happens, however, when we fall in love with ourselves, we see our partner from a whole different, through, through a totally different lens. So instead of like I used to with my husband, I used to blame him for how I felt. Sometimes I, I would think, oh, you know, it's because of him I feel this way. It's because of him that I have to have another drink or another glass of wine, you know, to numb it all out. Um, it's so easy when we haven't taken responsibility. When we haven't take, taken responsibility, we will blame the first person in our line of fire. It's usually our significant other and all their children and all the in-laws. Um, so when what a woman wants from a man is a man who loves himself. And when he loves himself, she starts to love herself. One of the two will be the catalyst for change. And quite often it only takes one to change. So if you're a guy listening to this, do know that if you do the inner work, A, you won't fall out of love with your wife unless you definitely were not supposed to be. And it really is an abusive relationship. So we'll just put that qualifier out there. But generally what happens is when you get closer to yourself, you also get closer to everyone in your intimate circle. significant other, your children. So it's not just a reunion with yourself, a coming to wholeness, a homecoming. It's also an attraction. You attract others into your life. Because why wouldn't you? Because fundamentally, you like who you are in this place. And if you do want to get woo-woo about it, it is like at a vibrational level, you are resonating at a higher level. So you're going to attract more interesting people into your life, people of lighter energy, and you will positively affect all those around you as well.
1: Yeah, I love that. I love that. It's, and it's, it's definitely my experience.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think also just um, while I remember it too, because I think this is an important point, we find ourselves in a unique place in history. Things are changing so, so, so quickly. Uh, a lot of people listening to this probably had parents who were part of the silent generation. Um, so that's what they call pre-baby boomer. That generation was uh, worked on the mantra of talking about it only makes it worse. So we all have either parents or grandparents who followed that mantra. And, we, and like my dad, I said he died a, a mystery. He did. He never talked about himself. Um, if we ever challenged him, he would get up, walk out the room, and go and watch the cricket. So uh, that was his way of dealing with it. Now we've got a new generation coming through in the form of our children, uh, Gen Z or Gen Z. They are demanding answers, Uh, you know, uh, sometimes they're known as the woke generation and that's used a little bit derisively, but actually it's true. In my experience, a lot of them are woke. They are very aware and they are going to, the pressure's going to come from them, from down below, if you like, from the children coming through the system for us as parents to wake up. Uh, That's, they're going to expect that of us. And so it's almost like it's now, for the first time generationally, our obligation as parents to be the big people our children want us to be, to live up to our true potential. Not because that's what we've read in a brochure somewhere, but because it's actually what they're requiring of us. And so we are now getting pressure and a positive pressure from our children to live up to our potential as against having that deflating pressure from our parents who said, no, get a good job, that's, that's what you're here for. You're here to be the breadwinner and a provider. And if you don't do that, then you're not, a, you're not a proper human. So the whole narrative now is changing and the pressure where it's coming from is from a different source. So that's really not just the invitation, but almost like the obligation we now have on ourselves to fulfill the expectations of our children, not our parents
1: wonderfully summed up and i'd also add to that that that's the expectation of people at work as well so as leaders as parents and as leaders this emotional intelligence is expected and i think that the only the ones who will rise in the next 20 years especially as we come into a to an age of artificial intelligence is the one thing that we do have and the one thing that artificial intelligence doesn't have is which is a heart which is a soul mm. And that that's the yeah. actual thing that w- if we connect with and we can use, which will create success and will create abundance in the, in the years to come.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, theres it's very important. I think that's a really good point that you raised, Pete, about um, how do we future-proof ourselves in a world that is changing faster than it's ever changed before in human history or our, our um, um, known human history um, and uh, let's just say, yeah, that AI has taken is is basically replacing our logical left brain. That only leaves us with one place to go, and that is developing our right brain. And fortunately, unlike IQ, EQ or emotional intelligence is something that we can develop. So that is a place where we can, if you like, uh, build ourselves up against an uncertain future by. Uh, tapping into that vast reservoir of wisdom that is inside all of us. We don't have to wait grey-haired and uh, old to become wise. Wisdom is available to anyone, really, who is willing to seek it. Um, And with that wisdom, we can start to become fully human and complete and start to ignite those parts of us that were not so valued in the past, such as our imagination, creativity, ability to problem solve, ability to see um, big picture, to come up with concepts, all of that is really the future of human development where we're going to uh, thrive both, both uh, personally and also financially.
1: Mm. Amazing. And with that, I think that's a wonderful place to conclude. Janet, if people want to get a hold of you, how do they find you?
2: Well, the, uh, I'm not a big one for social media. So, um, but I do have a website, uh, Janet Hogan.com. And that's a uh, a place that you can find me. Um, And, Yeah, I'm happy for anyone who reaches out to share the first step in plumbing the depths of yourself for no reason other than to show you that it doesn't have to take years and that it can be a simple step-by-step process uh, that is available to you, not even in months, potentially weeks. But the sooner you do this work and you go on this journey, the sooner you're going to be surprised and delighted by what you find.
1: Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for giving us your wisdom today. And um, yeah, I look forward to doing this again one day.
2: Thank you, Pete. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
1: So thank you for tuning in to the Privileged Man podcast. If you feel a resonance with our message and are keen to join a globally connected community of men committed to nurturing and elevating their mental wealth, I invite you to explore further. Visit our website, theprivilegedman.com, Well, you'll find enriching testimonials of men who have become a part of this empowering movement. Remember the journey to becoming a privileged man, a truly privileged man, one with elevated mental wealth, starts with your next action step. And that step could be just a click away. Thank you again for your time. And I'm looking forward to having you with us in our next episode.